Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Going Upcast, your weekly feel-good podcast. For this week, we're going to read some more adventures under the waters. I talk about all the stuff I'm getting done to prepare for my move, and we all learn a valuable life lesson. That's right, this week we've got three brand new chapters of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. We finally get to hear from Captain Nemo, and I gotta tell you, that voice is, um, inconsistent, is a, is a good way to describe it. Uh, this is episode 99 of the Going Upcast. Next week's episode 100. Isn't that exciting? Am I going to have something big and cool planned? Probably not. But it's still exciting to to hit such a milestone. But that's next week's celebration. Uh, I talk about the, the, like the big purchases and my preparations for moving. And I done fucked my car. And we'll, we'll learn about what I did, how it went wrong, and how it could have been prevented. So we can all learn a little something about it. Uh, but if you like the Going Cast and wish to support the Going Cast, there's lots of ways in which you can do that. Or someone, you can go to patreon.com forward slash going up cast, or you can become a $5 patron and get access to the monthly live streams and the ongoing Pokemon Nuzlocke run, which is coming along quite swimmingly at the time of recording this. I'm about to record the next v- episode of that, uh, so that'll be fun. And yeah, I think that's pretty much all the all the housekeeping stuff I have on, on my end. I hope you're all doing well. I know the world is still exploding, but fingers crossed that everybody's staying happy and healthy out there. Uh, keep wearing your masks and all that stuff. And let's get right into the podcast. Chapter 9, The Tantrums of Nedland. I have no idea how long the slumber lasted. Must have been a good while since we were completely over our exhaustion. I was the first to wake up. My companions weren't yet stirring and still lay in their corners like inanimate objects. I'd barely gotten up from my pa- uh, wait, hold on. I had barely gotten up from my passably hard mattress when I felt my mind clear, my brain go on alert. So I began a careful re-examination of myself. Nothing had changed in its interior arrangements. The prison was still a prison, and its prisoners still prisoners. But after taking advantage of our slumber, the steward had cleared the table. Consequently, nothing indicated any forthcoming improvement in our situation. I seriously wondered if we were doomed to spend the rest of our lives in this cage. This prospect seemed increasingly painful to me because, even though my brain was clear of its obsession from the night before, I was feeling an odd short-windedness in my chest. It was becoming hard for me to breathe. The heavy air was no longer sufficient for my full play for the full play of my lungs. Although our cell was large, we obviously had used up most of the oxygen it contained. In essence, over an hour's time, a single human being consumes all the oxygen found in 100 liters of air, at which point that air has become charged with nearly an equal amount of carbon dioxide and is no longer fit for breathing. So it was now urgent to renew the air in our prison, and no doubt the air in this whole underwater boat as well. Here, a question popped into my head. How did the commander of this aquatic residence go about it? Did he obtain air using a chemical method, releasing the oxygen contained in potassium chlorate by heating it, meanwhile absorbing the carbon dioxide with potassium hydroxide? If so, he would have to keep up some kind of relationship with the shore to come by the materials needed for such an operation. Did he simply uh, limit himself to storing the air in high-pressure tanks and then dispensing it accordingly to his crew's needs, perhaps? Or, proceeding in a more convenient, more economical, and consequently more probable fashion, was he satisfied with merely returning to breathe at the surface of the water like a whale, renewing his oxygen supply every 24 hours? In any event, whatever his method was, it seemed prudent to me that he used this method without delay. In fact, I had already resorted to speeding up my inhalations in order to extract from the cell what little oxygen it contained, when suddenly I was refreshed by a current of clean air scented with a salty aroma. It had to be a sea breeze, life-giving, and charged with iodine. 
I opened my mouth wide and my lungs glued themselves onto, or glutted themselves on the fresh particles. Glutted? Sure. Like gluttony? Why not? At the same time, I felt a swaying, a rolling of moderate magnitude, but definitely noticeable. This boat, this sheet iron monster, had obviously just risen to the surface of the ocean uh, there to breathe in good whale fashion. So the ship's mode of ventilation was finally established. Well, after like fucking 10 seconds of wondering, how narratively convenient. That was like two pages of, this is how the ship breathes. What an image you've painted for me, Jules. When I had finally absorbed, uh, or when I had absorbed a chest full of this clean air, I looked for the conduit, the air carrier, if you prefer, that allowed this beneficial influx to reach us. And I soon found it. Above the door opened an air vent that let in a fresh current of oxygen, renewing the thin air in our cell. I had gotten to this point in my observation when Ned and Count Cell woke up almost simultaneously under the influence of this reviving air purification. They rubbed their eyes, stretched their arms, and sprang to their feet. Did Master sleep well? Cancel asked me with his perennial good manners. Extremely well, my gallant lad, I replied. And how about you, Mr. Nedland? Like a log, Professor. But I must be imagining things because it seems like I'm breathing a sea breeze. A seaman could not be wrong on this topic. And I told the Canadian what had gone on while he slept. <clears throat> good. That explains perfectly. Uh, all that bellowing we heard when our so-called narwhal lay in sight of the Abraham Lincoln. Perfectly, Mr. Land. It was catching its breath. Oh, I have no idea what time it is, um, Professor Arnox, unless maybe it's dinner time. Dinner time, my fine harpooner? I'd say it's at least breakfast time, because we have suddenly woken up to a new day. Which indicates, Council replied, that we've spent 24 hours in slumber. That is my assessment. I won't argue with you, Nedland answered, but dinner or breakfast, that steward will be plenty welcome whether he brings one or the other. One or the other, Council said. Well, well put, the Canadian replied. We deserve two meals. Um, oh, one and the other, is what Council said. We deserve two meals. Speaking for myself, I'll do justice to them both. All right, Nedland, wait, let's wait and see, I replied. It's clear that these strangers don't intend to let us die of hunger, otherwise last evening's dinner wouldn't make any sense. Unless they're fattening us up, Ned shot back. I object, I replied. We have not fallen into the hands of cannibals. Just because they don't make a habit of it, Canadian replied with all seriousness, doesn't mean they don't indulge from time to time. Who knows? Maybe these people have gone without fresh meat for a long while, and in that case, three healthy, well-built specimens, like the professor, this his man-servant, and me. Get rid of those ideas, Mr. Land, answered the harpooner. And above all, don't let them uh, don't let them lead you to flare up against our host, which will only make our situation worse. Anyhow, uh, yeah, anyhow, the harpooner said, I'm as hungry as all ladies, and dinner or breakfast, not one puny meal has arrived. Mr. Land, I answered, we have to adapt to the schedule on board. Actually, you know what? I think uh, I think Professor Arnox is the type of individual who would say it like this. Mm -hmm. Mr. Land, I answered, we have to adapt to the schedule on board. And I imagine our stomachs are running ahead of the chef's cook dinner bell. Chief's cook dinner bell. Chief cook's dinner bell. There we go. Well, then we'll just adjust our stomachs to the chef's timetables. Council replied serenely. Here you go again, Council, my friend. Uh, there you go again, Council, my friend. The impatient Canadian shot back. You never allow yourself any displays of bile or attacks of nerve. You're everlastingly calm. You'd say after your after-meal grace, even if you didn't get any food for your before-meal blessing. And you'd starve to death rather than complain. What good would it do? Council asked. Complaining doesn't have to do good, it just feels good. And if these pirates... I say pirates out of consideration for the president's feelings, since he doesn't want us to call them cannibals. If these pirates think they're going to smother me in this cage without hearing what a cuss would spice up my outburst, then they've got another think coming. They got another think coming? Shouldn't it be thing? 
Is that a typo in the PDF? Possibly. Look here, Professor Arnock, speak frankly. How long do you figure they'll keep us in this iron box? To tell the truth, friend, friend land? To tell the truth, friendland, I know little more about it than you do. So you do know more about it. Or I guess it's not a little more. It's just little more. I I kind of possibly know more. Probably not, though. But in a nutshell, what do you suppose is going on? My supposition is that sheer chance has made us privy to an important secret. Now then, if the crew of this underwater boat have a personal interest in keeping that secret, and if their personal interest is more important than the lives of three men, I believe that our very existence is in jeopardy. If such is not the case, then at first available opportunity, this monster has, that has swallowed us will return us to the world inhabited by our own kind. Unless they recruit us to serve on the crew, Kansasen, and keep us here. Till the moment, Nedlin answered, when some frigate that's faster or smarter than the Abraham Lincoln captures this den of buccaneers and hangs us all by the neck from the tip of the mainmast yard. Well thought out, Mr. Land, I replied, but as yet I don't believe we have tendered any enlistment officers. Consequently, it's pointless to argue about what tactics should per uh, should pursue in such a case. I repeat, let's wait and be guided by events, and let's do nothing, since right now there's nothing we can do. On the contrary, Professor, Arpin replied, not wanting to give in. There is something we can do. Oh? And what's that, Mr. Knight? Break out of here. Breaking out of a prison on shore is difficult enough, but with an underwater prison, it strikes me as completely unwelcome. Come down, um... Come down, then, my friend, Council asked. How would you answer Master's objections? I refuse to believe that an American is at the end of his tether. Visibly baffled, the harpooner said nothing. Under the conditions in which fate had left us, it was absolutely impossible to escape. But a Canadian's wit is half French, and Mr. Nedland uh, made this clear in his reply. So, Professor Arnox, he went on thinking after a few moments. You haven't figured out what people do when they can't escape from their prison? No, my friend. Easy. They fix things so they stay there. Of course, Council put in. Since we're deep in the ocean, being inside this boat is vastly preferred to being above it or below it. Um, but we fix things by kicking out all our jailers, guards, and wardens, Nedlin added. What is, what's this, Ned? asked. You seriously consider taking over this craft? Very seriously, Canadian replied. It's impossible! And why is that, sir? Some promising opportunity might come up, and I don't see what could stop us from taking advantage of it. There are only about 20 men on board this machine. I don't think they can stale off two Frenchmen and a Canadian. <clears throat> oh, boy. The... The militaristic power of two Frenchmen and a Canadian. Well, I mean... You guys are well-fed. You're a master harpooner. But one of you is like a fish professor, and the other one's a manservant. So I don't know how much of a how much of a fight you're really going to give the uh, old Captain Nemo and friends. So, stave off two Frenchmen and a Canadian. Although I don't think their nationalities really have anything to do with it. I'm sure Ned would put up quite a heck of a fight. So... You know what, I'd be interested in seeing that. Let's let's see if we... Is there going to be combat? I guess there's been a little bit of combat in this book. I don't know how well Jules Verne will write like a fist fight. I guess we'll find out. It seemed wiser to accept the Harpooner's proposition than to debate it. Accordingly, um, I was content to reply, Let us, uh, let such circumstances come, Mr. Land, and we'll see. But until then, I beg you to control your impatience. We need to act shrewdly, and if your flare-ups won't give rise to any, and uh, your flare-ups won't give rise to any promising opportunities, so swear to me that you'll accept our situation without throwing a tantrum over. I give you my word, Professor. Nedlin replied with an, in an unenthusiastic tone. No vehement phrases will leave my mouth. No vicious gestures will give away my feelings. Not even when they don't feed us on time. 
I have your word, Ned, answered the Canadian. Then our conversations petered out, and each of us withdrew into our own thoughts. For my part, despite the harpooner's confident talk, I admit that I entertained no illusions. I had no faith in those promising opportunities that Ned Lynn mentioned. To operate with such efficiency, this underwater boat had to have a sizable crew, and so if it came to a physical contest, we would be facing an overwhelming opponent. Besides, before we could do anything, we had to be set free, and we definitely were not. And that we... And that we definitely were not. Yeah. I didn't see any way out of this sheet iron, hermetically sealed cell. If the strange commander of the boat did have a secret to keep, which seemed rather likely, he would never give us freedom of movement aboard his vessel. Now then, would he resort to violence in order to be rid of us, or would he drop us off one day on some remote coast? There lay the unknown. All these hypotheses seemed extremely plausible, and to hope for freedom the, uh, through use of force, you had to be a harpooner. I realized, moreover, that Nedlin's brooding was getting him madder by the minute. Little by little, I heard those aforesaid cuss words welling up in the depths of his gullet. I saw his movements turn threatening again. He stood up and pacing in circles like a wild beast in a cage, striking the walls with his foot and fist. Meanwhile, the hours passed. Our hunger nagged unmercifully, and this time the steward did not appear, which amounted to forgetting our castaway status for much too long if they really had good intentions toward us. Tortured by the growling of his well-built stomach, Nedland was getting more and more riled despite his word of honor. I was in real dread of an explosion when he stood in the presence of one of the men on board. For two more hours, Nedland's rage increased. The Canadian shouted and pleaded, but to no avail. The sheet iron walls were deaf. I did not hear a single sound inside the dead, steaming boat. The vessel hadn't stirred, but I obviously would have felt its hull vibrating under the influence of the propeller. It had unmistakably sunk into the watery depths. Um, and no longer belonged to the outside world. All this dismal silence was terrifying. As for our neglect or isolation in the depths of our cell, I was afraid to guess how long it might last. Little by little, hope, hopes I had entertained after our interview with the ship's commander were fading away. The gentleness of the man's gaze, the generosity expressed in his facial features, the nobility of his bearing all vanished from my memory. I saw this mystifying individual and knew for what he inevitably must be, cruel and merciless. I viewed him as an outside, I viewed him as outside humanity, beyond all feeling and compassion, the implacable foe of his fellow men, toward whom he must have sworn an undying hate. But even so, was the man going to let us die of starvation, locked up in this cramped prison, exposed to these horrible temptations to which people are driven by extreme hunger? This grim possibility took on a dreadful intensity in my mind, fired by my imagination. Felt an unreasoning terror run through me. Council stayed calm. Nedland bellowed. Just then a noise was audible outside. Footsteps rang on the metal tilling. The locks returned, the door opened, and the steward appeared. Before I could make a single movement to prevent him, the Canadian rushed at the poor man, threw him, threw him down, and held him by the throat. The steward was choking in the grip of those powerful hands. Council was already trying to loosen the harpooner's hands from his half-suffocated victim, and I had just gone to join in the rescue when I was abruptly nailed to the spot by the words pronounced in French. Um, by words pronounced in French... Uh, I guess, I guess we'll find out who, uh, who's talking next chapter, but they say, calm down, Mr. Land, and you, Professor, kindly listen to me. Um, God, you know, this, 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 oh, hold on, this book's a really good excuse for me to really stretch my French accent. Um, I guess we find out if Nemo's French? I don't know who's talking, but, <laughs> I'm so bad at French accents. It's, um, like, uh, calm, calm down, Mr. Land, and you, Professor, kindly listen to me. No, I'm not. Well, fuck it. I mean, it's already built up. It's gonna be bad. Here we go. Calm down, Mr. Land. And you, Professor, kindly listen to me, huh? There you go. That was my terrible French accent. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Let's move on. Let's keep going. Recently, I have taken into 
procuring various items that I will need in my new domain space, which I will be moving into in less than a month. Um, there is still an awful lot of packing to do. The vast majority of my stuff has been sealed away into plastic bins, which is very nice, but pretty much everything that I actively use, like all of my clothes and Dungeons and Dragons supplies and everything I do to record audiobooks and podcasts is still out and about because I, you know, I can't like just fucking pack away my life for a month. Um, but I did take a soiree adventure to a store that I've long since not forgotten about, but I haven't visited since middle school. And that was Ikea. Me and a, me and a pal of mine went out to Ikea and we basically just sat on like every couch they had, um, at their disposal because I needed couch. Um... And we, we ended up finding one that was pretty fantastic. It's called the Lidholt, L-I-D-H-U-L-T, the Lidholt um, couch. And the one we sat on was leather and it was really nice and we both agreed it was pretty fantastic. And it had this, this chase part, um, which is like, it's like, a, it's like a much longer, a little wider portion of the couch. Uh, so it sticks out like an extra couple of feet from the couch and you can basically lie down on it. But what was nice about the, the chase portion of the couch, uh, at least of this couch, was that it also doubled as a storage unit. So you could lift the cushion and that whole giant thing was also just empty and you could put like blankets and stuff in there. And I'm like, oh, that's really practical. Especially when you know you live in an apartment and space is at a premium. Uh, having your furniture double as storage is pretty fantastic. And we looked at, we, like we walked through the entire store um, looking at everything from the the couches that I needed uh, to to bookcases because I needed I need a bookcase um, and all that stuff and in the end I didn't end up getting anything that day but I have since ordered furniture from IKEA it will be showing up like over the next couple of weeks and then obviously I'm just gonna leave it packaged um, I've hired movers to actually help with the move itself and they're just gonna move all of my my sealed furniture for me into my new my new place at which point I have I've taken basically that week off to unpack to uh, buy food to go out and get anything I need to set up internet all that fun stuff um, but what I ended up getting from Ikea was I got a new bookcase that is uh, brown and black in color of wood it's like a Hemnes bookcase and um, I got just the the chase part of the lid Holt sofa um, I was going to get the chase part and a sofa bit as like two separate units. Um, but because Ikea just had like this massive sale on a bunch of stuff, they didn't have any armrests beyond like just the two that I could get for the chase. And I needed four armrests. So I was like, all right, I'll just get the chase seat from Ikea and I'll get the sofa from somewhere else. So then I went to Costco because... That's like my goddamn bread and butter where, where I go shopping for things is Costco. And Costco, as if it read my goddamn mind, had like fucking 20 couches just like out on the show floor for you to sit and, and test. And most of these couches were like, we're going to take up three quarters of your basement because it takes up like three walls of space, like massive fucking $5,000 couches. And I'm like, that's absurd. My I cannot fit that in my apartment. Or I probably could. But that's it. That's all I get in my apartment. And I'm like, I don't want that. I want a bit more flexibility. And so what I didn't end up finding was a lovely, uh, like, I would say like two and a half seats 
long couch. It's like seven feet long, which means I can comfortably lay down on it um, without having to like scrunch up my knees or anything like that. And the the left side and the right side uh, are basically two reclining chairs, like motorized reclining chairs that are just attached in the middle by a, a third, slightly smaller seat. And I'm like, that's perfect. It's super comfy. I sat down on it. It's a lovely like medium brown shade. The chair is solid black. Um, that's why the bookcase is black and brown because it'll it'll accent nicely with the uh, with the sofa and the chair. And then I bought a TV from Best Buy. Um, uh, it's a it's a 43 inch screen, which is significantly larger than I was picturing in my brain um, of it being 43 inches. So that's very nice. Um, I thought 43 inches was going to be a, a fairly conservative size, but it's like, you know, it's like not quite arm's length, arm's width for me, but it's like, it's a, it's a decent sized television with, and in my presumably fairly small apartment, that TV will be more than sufficient for the viewing of movies or YouTube videos, or in my case, most likely playing video games. So that's pretty much all, like the really big pieces that I've gotten, uh, for this move you know, pieces that I, that I lacked. Um, I already have like a dresser type unit. Um, I have a, like a bookcase shelf type unit. I have my bed naturally. Um, I have a desk, uh, that's like an L shaped desk that I'm actually going to not connect. Uh, I'm just going to leave like the corner piece out of that equation. So I have a bit more flexibility with where the two halves of the desk are located. Cause one of those desk halves is going to be my TV stand. And the other desk half is going to be my desk. And so I'll have a bit more flexibility in where those things are located, um, provided I can get like a 30 foot HDMI cord to plug the TV into the computer. Um, and then the TV into the wall for cable if I end up getting that, which uh, if I don't have to, I'm not going to. Um, it's kind of where my head is at. Like if it's cheap, if internet is cheaper with cable, then fuck it, who cares? But I don't I don't need cable to, to, to survive. I just don't. So that's kind of where that is at. And then I've got the kitchen table. And I'm pretty sure that's it. And then just like all of my all of my useless crap um, that I have collected over the over the years. Um, I'm hoping that the closet's big enough for all my clothes without the need for the dresser to hold clothes, so it can hold like DVDs and games and stuff. Um, but we'll find out. Could also be like my D and D cabinet, which would be just the fucking nerdiest thing ever, and I would love it. Um, but yeah, uh, IKEA shopping was was interesting. They're doing a fairly decent job of like staggering people walking into the store. But once you're in the store, the social distancing just goes right out the fucking window, um, which is unfortunate. But they did have like hand sanitizer um, at periodic intervals, so people were staying at least somewhat clean, and everybody was wearing a mask. They wouldn't let you into the store without a mask on, so that was nice. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to share a little bit about that because going to IKEA was a ton of fun. And I probably will be going again after I move in fully, just in case I need like various bits and bobs like um, glasses or uh, pans. I don't have any frying pans for some reason. Like, how did that? How did that get skipped? What the hell happened to my fucking frying pans? They're gone. So I I've got pots, not a not a pan in sight, not one frying pan. So that surprised me. Um, I also need a, a really good kitchen knife. So that's on the on the list as well but yeah things are moving apace uh i'm very excited about all of the things i i'm i'm in love with the couch i love the bookcase i love the chair i'm a really big fan of my my furniture decisions uh, i would not have been able to do it without uh my friend who came to ikea with me uh she was incredibly helpful way better at this than i am so thank you very much 
Um, she doesn't listen to the podcast, but that's fine. It's it's recorded in in the annals, and um, that's what matters. But yeah, it's uh it's very exciting. I don't know why my voice is cracking. It's very exciting. Um, and I can't fucking wait. I just I just can't wait. It's it is right around the corner. And when I say right around the corner, I mean by the time you guys hear this, it's gonna be like three weeks. So yeah. Anyway, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Chapter 10, Man of the Waters. It was the ship's commander who had just spoken. Okay, so I guess Nemo's gonna have a shitty French accent. Cool. Not Arnox, the Frenchman, but Nemo, the, the man who can speak French. I guess we'll find out. These words, Nedlin stood up quickly. Nearly strangled, the steward staggered out at a signal from his superior. But such was the commander's authority aboard his vessel. Not one gesture gave away the resentment that this man must have felt towards the Canadian. In silence, we waited for the outcome of the scene. Count Sel, in spite of himself, seemed almost fascinated. I was stunned. Arms crossed, leaning against a corner of the table, the commander studied us with great care. Was he reluctant to speak further? Did he regret those words that he had just pronounced in French? You would have thought so. After a few moments of silence, which none of us would have dreamed of interrupting. Gentlemen, he said in a calm, penetrating voice, I speak French, English, German, Latin with equal fluency. Hence, no, I don't know what this, uh, this accent isn't French, but I'm going to write it out and let's see where it goes. Hence, I could have answered you as earlier. Um, answered you as early as our initial interview but i first wanted to make your acquaintance and then think things over your four versions of the same narrative perfectly consistent by and large established your personal identities for me i now know that sheer chance has placed in my presence professor pierre Arnox, specialist in natural histories at the paris museum and entrusted with scientific mission abroad his manservant Count Sally Nedland, a harpooner of Canadian origin, aboard the Abraham Lincoln, the frigate, and the National Navy of the United States of America. About an agreement. Commander, he's... So, it's Nemo's just gonna flow through, through like, different accents, because he's, a, he's so worldly, and he speaks so many languages, that it makes sense, from a narrative point of view, that he sounds like he comes from everywhere. Also, it's my convenient excuse because I'm terrible at maintaining consistent accents. Unless I've practiced that voice for quite some time. And Nemo's voice is brand new. About an agreement. Commander had to put a question to me, so no answer was called for him. The man expressed himself with perfect ease without a trace of an accent. Well, fuck you. He's got so much accent. He's got so many accents. His phrasing was clear. His words well chosen. His faculty in elocution remarkable. Facility in elocution remarkable. And yet to me, he, did not, he didn't have the feel of a fellow countryman. He went on with the conversation as follows. No doubt, sir. You felt that I waited rather too long before paying you the second visit. After discovering your identities, I wanted to weigh carefully what policy to pursue with you. I had great difficulty in deciding... Some extremely inconvenient circumstances have brought you into the presence of a man who has cut himself off from humanity. Your coming has disrupted my whole existence. Un unintentionally? I said, unintentionally? The stranger replied, raising his voice. Was it unintentionally that the Abraham Lincoln hunted me on every sea? Was it unintentionally that you traveled aboard that frigate? Was it unintentionally that your shells bounced off my ship's hull? Was it unintentionally that Mr. Nedland hit me with his harpoon? I detected a controlled irritation in these words. But there was a perfectly natural reply to these charges, so I made it. Sir, as I said, 
You are surely, um, you are surely unaware of the discussions that we have taken place in Europe and America with uh, yourself as the subject. You don't realize that various accidents caused by collisions with your underwater machine have aroused public passions on those two continents. I'll spare you the innumerable hypotheses uh, with which we've tried to explain this inexplicable phenomenon whose secret is yours alone. Please understand that the Abraham Lincoln chased you over the Pacific high seas in the belief that we were hunting some powerful marine monster, which had to be purged from the ocean at all cost. A half-smile curled on the commander's lips, then in a calmer tone. Professor Alnox, he replied, do you dare claim that your frigate would not have chased and cannonade in an underwater boat as readily as a monster? This question baffled me, since Commander Farragut would have certainly sound no such as a Jason. He would have seen that as a sworn duty to destroy a contrivance of this kind just as promptly as a gigantic narwhal. So you understand, sir, the stranger went on, that I have a right to treat you as my enemy. It's kind of... Irish, Scottish, French? I don't really know where I'm going with this. It's fun. I'm enjoying it. I kept quiet with good reason. What was the use in debating such a proposition when superior force can wipe out the best argument? It took me a great while to decide, Commander went on. Nothing obliged me more than to grant your hospitality. If I were to part your company with you, I'd have no personal interest in ever seeing you again. I could put you back on the platform of this ship that served as your refuge. I could sink under the sea. I could forget you ever existed. Wouldn't that be my right? Perhaps it would be the right of a savage, replied, but not that of a civilized man. Um, Professor, Commander replied swiftly, I am not what you term a civilized man. I've severed all ties with society for reasons that I alone have the right to appreciate. Therefore, I obey none of its regulations, and I insist that you never invoke them in front of me. This was plain speaking. A flash of anger and scorn had lit up the stranger's eyes, and I glimpsed a fearsome past in this man's life. Not only had he placed himself beyond human law, he had rendered himself independent, out of all reach, free from the strictest senses of the word. For who would dare chase him to the depths of the sea when he thwarted all attacks on the surface? What ship could withstand a collision with his underwater monitor? What armor plate, no matter how heavy, could bear the thrusts of his spur? No man among men uh, could call to him to account for his actions. God, if he believed in him, his conscience, uh, if he had one. These were the only judges to whom he was answerable. These answers swiftly crossed my mind while this strange individual fell silent like someone completely self-absorbed. I regarded him with a mixture of fear and fascination, in the same way, no doubt, as Oedipus regarded the Sphinx. Did Oedipus talk to the... Talk to a Sphinx? Am I thinking of Oedipus? Am I thinking of the right one? Yes. Yeah. No. Wait. Yes? Hold on. Do I have to Google the story of Oedipus again? And the Sphinx? I guess this might be a different... Oedipus and the Sphinx. Yeah, look out. That's, uh, that's what that is. Oh, it's, a, it's an oil painting. Um, but I, I guess it, like... Oedipus and the Sphinx, in this case, is an oil painting, but it's based on, I guess, the story. Cool. Anyway, that's exciting. Uh, it's, a, it's a decent enough painting. The Sphinx seems very small, though. I always pictured Sphinxes to be, like, you know, giant monsters, not, like, actual lion-sized people, but I guess that makes sense. Um, now, think about it. After a very long silence, the commander went on with our conversation. So I had difficulty deciding, he said. But I concluded that my personal interests could be reconciled with that natural compassion to which every human being has a right. Since fate has brought you here, you'll stay aboard my vessel. 
You'll be free here, and in exchange for that freedom, moreover totally related to it, I'll lay on you just one condition. Your word that you'll submit to it will be sufficient. Come on, sir. All right. Assume this condition is one an honest man can accept. Yes, sir. Just this. It's possible that certain unforeseen events may force me to confine you to your cabins for some hours or even some days, as the case may be. Since I prefer never to use violence, I expect from you in such case even more than in any other your unquestioning obedience. By acting in this way, I shield you from complicity. I absolve you of all responsibility. Since I make it impossible for you to say what you aren't meant to say, dare accept these condition. This condition. So things happened on board that were quite odd to say the least. Things never, uh, things never to be seen by people not placing themselves beyond society's law. Among all the surprises the future had in store for me, this would not be the mildest. We accept. I replied. Only I ask your permission, sir, to address a question to you. Just one. Go ahead, sir. You said we'd be free aboard your vessel. Completely. Then I would ask. What do you mean by this freedom? Why freedom is to, uh, why the freedom to come and go, see, and even closely observe everything happening here, except under the, it's certain rare circumstances. In short, the freedom we enjoy ourselves, my companions and I. It was obvious that we did not understand each other. But pardon me, sir, I went on, but that is merely the freedom that every prisoner has, the freedom to pace his cell. That's not enough for us. Nevertheless, he will have to do. What? We must give up seeing our homeland, friends, and relatives ever again. Yes, sir. But giving up that intolerable earthly yoke that some men call freedom is less painful than you think. By thunder, Nedlin shouted. I'll never promise I uh, won't try getting out of here. I did not ask for such a promise, Mr. Knight, Commander replied coldly. Sir, I replied, flaring up in spite of myself. You are taking unfair advantage of us. This is sheer cruelty. No, sir. It is an act of mercy. You are my prisoners of war cared for you and with a single word I could plunge you back into the ocean's depths. You attacked me. You've just stumbled on a secret. No living man must probe the secret of my entire existence. Do you think I'll send you back to the world who must know nothing more of me? Never. By keeping you on board, it isn't you who I'm caring for. It's me. These words indicated that Commander pursued a policy impervious to arguments. Then, sir, I went on, you give us quite simply a choice between life and death. Quite simply. My friends, I said, to a question couched in these terms, our answer can be taken for granted, but no solemn promises bind us to the commander of this vessel. None, sir, the stranger went on. Then in a gentler voice he went on. Now, allow me to finish what I have to tell you. I have heard of you, Professor Arnox. You, if not your companions, won't perhaps complain too much about the stroke of fate that has brought us together. Among the books that make up my favorite reading, You'll find the works you've published on the great ocean depths. I've poured over it. You've taken your studies as far as terrestrial science can go. But you don't know everything because you haven't seen everything. Let me tell you, Professor, you won't regret the time you spend aboard my vessel. You're going to voyage through lands of wonder. Stunned amazement will probably be your habitual state of mind. It will be a long while before you tire the sights constantly before your eyes. I'm going to make another underwater tour of the world, perhaps my last, who knows, and I'll review everything I've studied in the depths of these seas that I've crossed so often. You can be my fellow student. Starting this very day, you'll enter a new element. You'll see what no human being has ever seen before, since my men and I no longer count. And thanks to me, you're going to learn the ultimate secrets of our planet. I can't deny the commander's words had a tremendous effect on me. 
He had caught me on my weak side, and I momentarily forgot that not even this sublime experience was worth the loss of my freedom. Besides, I counted on the future to resolve this important question, so I con was content to reply. Sir, even though you've cut yourself off from humanity... Oh, I'm sorry. Even though you've cut yourself off from humanity, I can see that you haven't disowned all human feeling. Or castaways whom you've terribly taken aboard will never forget that. Speaking for myself, I don't rule out that the interests of science could override the even the need for freedom, which promised me that, in exchange, our encounter will provide great rewards. Thought the commander would offer me his hand to seal our agreement. He did nothing of the sort. I regretted that. One last question, I asked, just as this inexplicable being seemed ready to withdraw. Ask it, Professor. By what name am I to call you? Sir, commander replied. To you, I am simply Captain Nemo. To me, you and your companions are simply passengers on the Nautilus. Captain Nemo called out. A steward appeared. Captain gave him his orders that, uh, in that strange language, I couldn't even identify. Then turning to the Canadian in council, Emil is waiting for you in your cabin, he told them. Kindly follow this man. That's an offer I can't refuse, Harpooner replied. After being confined for over 30 hours, he and council were finally out of the cell. And now Professor Arnox, our own breakfast is ready. Allow me to lead the way. It was to command, Captain. I followed Captain Nemo as soon as I had passed through the doorway and went down a kind of electrically lit passageway that resembled the gangway of a ship. After a stretch of some ten meters, the second door opened before me. I then entered a dining room decorated and furnished with austere tastes. Inlaid with ebony trim, tall oaken sideboards stood at both ends of this room, sparkling on their shelves with staggered rows of earthenware, porcelain, and glass of incalculable value. There was silver plate to dinnerware gleamed under rays of pouring from light fixtures in the ceiling whose glare was softened and tempered by delicately painted designs. In the center of this room stood a, rich, a table richly spread. Captain Nemo indicated the place I was to occupy. Be seated, he said, and eat like the famished man you must be. Our breakfast consisted of several dishes whose contents were all supplied by the sea and some foods whose nature and derivation were unknown to me. They were good, I admit, but a peculiar flavor to which I would soon grow accustomed. These various food items seemed to be rich in phosphorus, and I thought that they, too, must have been of marine origin. Captain Nemo stared at me. I asked him nothing, but he read my thoughts, and on his own, um, he answered the questions. I was itching to address him. Most of these dishes are new to you, uh, he told me, but you can consume them without fear. They're healthy and nourishing. I renounced terrestrial food long ago, and I'm none the worse for it. My crew are strong and full of energy, and they eat what I eat. So, I said, all these foods are products of the sea? Yes, Professor, the sea supplies all of my needs. Sometimes I cast my nets in our wake, and I pull them up ready to burst. Sometimes I go hunting in the midst of the element that has long seemed so far out of man's reach, and I corner the game that dwells in the underwater forests. Like the flocks of old Proteus King's Neptune shepherds, my herds graze without fear on the ocean's immense prairies. There, I own vast properties that I harvest myself, which are forever sown by the hands of the creator of all things. I stared at Captain Nemo in definite astonishment, and I answered him. So I understand perfectly how your nuts can furnish excellent fish for your table. I understand less how you can chase aquatic game in your underwater forests. How a piece of red meat, no matter how small, can figure into your menu. That I don't understand at all. Nor I, sir, Captain Nemo answered me. I never touch the flesh of land mammals. Nevertheless, this, when I'm pointing at a dish with some slices of loin, were still left. What you believe to be red meat, Professor, is nothing more than loin of sea turtle. Similarly, here are dolphin levers you might mistake for stewed pork. My chef is a skillful food processor who excels in 
pickling and preserving these various exhibits from the ocean. Feel free to sample all these foods. Here are some preserves of sea cucumber that a Malaysian would declare to be unrivaled in the entire world. Here's cream from milk furnished from the udders of whales and sugar from a huge fucus plant. <laughs> from the huge fucus plant in the North Sea. And finally allow me to offer you some marmalade of sea and enemy equal to that of the tastiest fruits. Okay. Let's just la let's just rattle down. So, the loin of a sea turtle. Probably an endangered species. Nemo, you fuck. Dolphin livers. Nemo, you fuck. What else did he what else did he make? Sea cucumber. That's basically going to taste like like nothing, really. It's going to taste like seawater. Same for the sea anemone. I don't think I don't think those are going to be very tasty. The closest thing I've had to well, any of these um like either the sea cucumber or the uh, the sea anemone. I've eaten jellyfish, and that's very chewy and very rubbery. I guess not a lot of flavor. It takes on flavors pretty well, but it doesn't have much on on its own. Um, and then apparently he's milking whales, which makes sense because, um, you know, they're mammals. I always thought whale milk was uh it's pink, isn't it? It's got like a really high iron content. Whale milk. Um, as a general rule, whale milk is rich in fats and comes in very large quantities. Blue whale, largest mammal, uh, largest, has the largest mammary glands on the earth. Each uh, is about 1.5 meters long and weighs as much as a baby elephant. It can produce 200 liters of milk a day with a fat content of 35 to 50 percent. Ah, no, I guess it's just it's just white. Um, it's it's it looks like it looks like milk from a from any any source can you order whale milk what no you can't you can't buy whale milk no way that is not a, that is not a thing um whale cheese the smelly blue cheese is made from curdled orca milk as satisfying as cow cheese but a bit saltier Normally the whale milk would be wasted on baby whales, but don't worry, just like the cow milk industry, we've separated the babies from the mothers at birth so you can have your cheese. That, this has to be bullshit. That's not, no, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. They, no. Okay, yeah, don't forget. Where there's milk, there's veal. Try our baby whale meat. Okay, yeah, there's, there's no fucking way. <laughs> there's no fucking way. Uh-uh. No, I, I disagree with that. So fucking hard. Yeah, I don't think I don't think you can buy whale milk. I don't think there's a secret whale milk industry um in this world. You can get camel milk. That's fair. Um What a weird rabbit hole I'm kinda kinda diving down. Exotic milk. What the what the hell kinds of milks can you buy? Inside the world's largest collection of animal milk. It's like a weird, like a weird fetish. Ugh. Oh, it's an article. I'm just like exotic dairy. Yeah, you can you can get camel milk or gorilla milk. You can get milk powder from camels. Okay. So in this in this exotic meat market, uh, it has some like powdered milk options. So isn't that fun? Anybody want... Wow, these are some exotic fucking meats. We got African antelope and zebra. 
Um, alligator meat, alpaca meat, armadillo meat, beaver meat, <laughs> bluefoot chicken, camel, coyote, duck, that's not very exotic, elk, uh, frog legs, goat meat, guinea fowl, guinea pig, kangaroo, muskrat, opossum, ostrich, otter meat, no. You motherfuckers don't know. Oh my god. What kind of horrible monster would cook and eat an otter? That is... That's upsetting. Like, oh man. You fucking monsters. Leave the otters alone. Raccoon. Red deer. Mmm. Mmm. Oh, look at that. Testicles. There you go. Turtle meat. Oh, turtle meat. Does it does it actually look like red meat? With a picture of a snapping turtle? Wow, actually, there's a picture of ground turtle. Frozen snapping turtle eggs. What the fuck? This website upsets me on like a really big level. Wild game meat from Scotland. Yeah, no. Yak, no. Nope, I don't like that at all. I can't believe that. I can't believe otter meat. Aren't they protected? Are otters protected? I like they were hunted to damn near extinction. Don't eat otter meat. Anyway, uh, Nemo makes some interesting foods. So I sampled away more as a curiosity seeker than an epicure, while Captain Nemo delighted me with his incredible anecdotes. But this sea, Professor Arnox, he told me, this prodigious, inexhaustible wetness of the sea not only feeds me, she dresses me as well. That fabric covering you was woven from a mass of filaments that anchor certain seashells that, uh, as the ancients were wont to do, it was dyed from purple ink from the murex snail and shaded with violent tits that I extracted from a marine slug, the Mediterranean sea hare. The perfumes you'll find on you know, the washstand in our cabin were produced from the oozings of marine plants. Your mattress was made from the ocean's softest eelgrass. Your quill pen will be whalebone. Your ink is a juice secreted by cuttlefish or squid. Everything comes to me from the sea, just as someday everything will return to it. You love the sea, Captain. Yes, I love it. The sea is the be-all and end-all. It covers seven-tenths of the planet Earth. Its breath is clean and healthy. It's an immense wilderness where a man is never lonely. Because he feels life astir on every side, the sea is simply the vehicle for a prodigious, unearthly mode of existence. It's simply movement and love. It's living infinity, as one of your poets put it. In essence, Professor, nature is here made manifest by all three of her kingdoms, mineral, vegetable, and animal. The last of these is amply represented by the four zoophyte groups, the three classes of articulates, five classes of mollusks, three vertebrate classes, mammals, reptiles, and those countless legions of fish. An infinite order of animals totaling more than 13,000 species, of which only one-tenth belong to fresh water. The sea is a vast pool of nature. Our globe began with the sea, so to speak. And who can say we won't end with it? Here lies supreme tranquility. The sea doesn't belong to tyrants. On its surface, they can still exercise their inequitous claims, battle each other, devour each other, hold every earthly horror, but 30 feet below sea level. Their dominion ceases, their influence fades, their powers vanish. Ah, sir, live. Live in the hearts of the seas. Here alone lies independence. Here I recognize no superiors. Here I am free. Captain Nemo suddenly fell silent in the midst of his enthusiastic outpouring. Had he let himself get carried away past the bounds of his habitual reserve? Had he said too much? 
For a few moments, he strolled up and down, all a quiver. Then his nerves grew calmer, his facial features recovered their usual icy composure, and turning to me. Now, Professor, he said, if you'd like to inspect the Nautilus, I am yours to command. And that's the end of that chapter, but there was a lovely little footnote there telling me that in Latin, Nemo means no one. That's pretty good. I like that. I am cam I am Captain No One. That's pretty, that's, that's good. I like that a lot. I'm just gonna tell y'all a real quick story, and hopefully there's gonna be a lesson, uh, a moral, uh, a thing that we'll all learn and prosper from in the future. Um, and I'm, just, I'm gonna start with the lesson, so we know what the context is. If, if something goes wrong with your car, uh, look that shit up. Don't just don't just assume you know how to fix it, like I did. Um, basically, I got a I got a flat, and I put the donut on. And I went to go get the flat repaired. And um, I got like, I went to this one place and they sucked. So I went to the dealership I originally purchased the car at. And um, they were like, oh, shut up, phone. They were like, uh, you know, you should get all four tires because you can't just replace one. It'll throw off the all wheel drive of your car or whatever. And I was like, fine. Uh, so it was like X amount of money. And as they're doing it, uh, it turns out because I put the donut on incorrectly, and I'm sure you're wondering how I managed to do that, I put the wheel on backwards. Um, and what had happened was the arch of the wheel, instead of facing out and acting as a casing for the brake system, um, it was grinding against the brake system. And I had actually ground the housing for the brake pad down to almost nothing. Uh, which had generated a basically unsafe driving vehicle um, because my brakes wouldn't function properly and would have killed me. So that was fun. That was neat. And had I looked up how to do it beforehand, definitely wouldn't have happened. So my pride got in the way of of my ability to take care of my car. And now it's going to cost a lot of money. So that's fun and cool. Uh, but the lesson here is that if something goes wrong with your car, or really with anything... You know, just don't don't just assume you got it. Like, if you got it, then fine. But if you if, if there's even a little bit of a shred of doubt, fucking look that shit up, because it'll save you. Thirty seconds of googling would have saved me having to drive a, a a loaner car for a couple of days and getting parts shipped in from Montana or whatever the fuck in order to fix my car. But it's all fine. Nobody got hurt. Just me financially, and it's only money, so who really cares? But yeah, just Google, Google that shit. It'll save you so much time. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Chapter 11. The Nautili. The Nautilusus. Captain Nemo stood up. Nemo! I've got to find my son, Nemo! Uh, that's a good movie. Even though Ellen DeGeneres apparently is kind of a monster. I don't remember. Who cares? Captain Nemo stood up. I followed him. Contrived at the rear of our dining room, a double door opened and I entered a room whose dimensions equaled the one I had just left. That's right, it's the exact same room. Nope, it's a library. Tall, black rosewood bookcases inlaid with cropper work held on their wide shelves a large number of unformally bound tomes. Uniformly. Unformally. God damn it. 
These furnishings followed the contours of the room. There are lower parts leading to huge couches upholstered in maroon leather and curved for maximum comfort. Light movable reading stands, which could be pushed away or pulled near as desire, allowed books to be positioned on them for easy study. In the center stood a huge table covered in pamphlets, which I almost misread as pumpernickel, along with some newspapers long out of date were visible. Electric light flooded this whole harmonious totality, falling from four frosted half globes set in the scroll work of the ceiling. I stared in genuine wonderment at this room so ingeniously laid out, and I couldn't believe my eyes. Captain Nemo, I told my host, who had just stretched out on a couch. This is a library that would do credit to more than one continental palace, and I truly marvel to think it can go with you into the deepest seas. Where can one find greater silence or solitude, Professor? Captain Nemo replied, Did your study at the museum afford you such a perfect retreat? No, sir. I might add that it's quite a humble one next to yours. You own 6,000 or 7,000 volumes here. 12,000, Professor Arnox. They are my sole remaining ties to dry land. But I was done with the shore the day my Nautilus submerged for the first time under the waters. That day I purchased my last volumes, my last pamphlets, my last newspaper. And ever since I have chosen to believe that humanity no longer thinks your rights. In any event, Professor, these books are at your disposal, and you may use them freely. Twelve thousand books. That's a lot of books. I then Captain Eamon approached the shelves of this library. Written in every language, books on science, ethics, and literature were there in abundance. But I didn't see a single work on economics. Seemed to be, uh, that se they seemed to be strictly banned on board. One odd detail, all these books were shelved indiscriminately without regard to the language in which they were written. And this jumble proved that the Nautilus's captain could read fluently whatever volumes he chanced to pick up. Among these books, I noted masterpieces by great uh, by greats of ancient and modern times. In other words, all of humanity's finest achievements in history, poetry, fiction, science, from Homer to Victor Hugo, from Xenophon to Michelet, from Rabelais to Madame George Sand. Victor Hugo wrote uh, Hunchback and uh, Les Mis, um, which are both massive books. Uh, Homer did the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, I do not recognize, I, I vaguely recognize Michelet. Um, let's just do a quick little Google search. Who the fuck is Zen Xenophon? Uh, Xenophon is another ancient Greek Athenian historian, philosopher, and soldier. Okay. How about Michelet? Michelet. Nope. Hold on. Uh, Michelet. He is Jules Nicolette, French historian. Michelet, maybe? I don't know. Rabelais. Uh, Francois Rabelais uh, was a French Renaissance writer, physician, Renaissance humanist monk, and Greek scholar. And George Sand. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Amante Lucille uh, Dupont was best known by her pen name, George Sand, French novelist. Huh. Is recognized as one of the most notable writers of European Romantic era in the 1800s. Okay. So, fun. Most of these writers are French. What a surprise. What a fucking shock. It's almost like Jules Verne was also French. Anyway. But science in particular represented the majority investment, uh, the major investment of this library. Books on mechanics and ballistics, hydrography, 
hydro yeah, hydrography, meteorology, geography, geology, etc. How the place, they're no less important than works on natural history. I realized that they made up the captain's chief reading. Then I saw complete works of Humboldt, the complete Arago, as well as works by Foucault, Henry St. Clair de Vol, Ch Chasselas, Milne Edwards, Carterphage, John Tyndall, Faraday, Berthelot, Father Secchi, Peterman, Commander Maury, Louis Segezes, etc., plus the transactions of France Academy of Science, bulletins from various geographical societies, and the prime location of those two volumes on the great ocean depths that had perhaps earned me this comparatively charitable welcome from Captain Nemo. Among the works of Joseph Bertrand, his books entitled The Founders of Astronomy even gave me a definite date, and since I knew it had appeared in the course of 1865, I concluded that fitting out the Nautilus hadn't taken place before then. Accordingly, three years ago, at most, Captain Nemo had begun his underwater existence. Moreover, I hoped some books even more recent would permit me to pinpoint the date precisely. Didn't he say he bought his last newspapers? One of those have the exact date on them? I don't know. I uh, pinpointed the date precisely, but I had plenty of time to look for them, and I did not want to put off any longer our stroll through the wonders of the Nautilus. Sir, I told the captain, thank you for placing this library at my disposal. There are scientific treasures here, and I'll take advantage of them. This room isn't only a library, said Captain Nemo. It is also a smoking room. A smoking room? I exclaimed. Then one may smoke on board. Surely. In that case, sir, I'm forced to believe that you've kept up relations with Havana. None whatsoever, Captain replied. Try this cigar, Professor Arnox. And even though it does not come from Havana, it will satisfy you if you are a connoisseur. I took the cigarette off. Cigar offered me, whose shape uh, recalled those from Cuba, but seemed to be made of gold leaf. I lit it with a small brazier supported by an unlong bronze stand, and I inhaled my first whiffs with a relish of a smoker who hadn't had a puff in days. It's excellent, I said, but it's not from the tobacco plant. Right, Commander replied. This tobacco comes from neither Havana nor the Orient. It's a kind of nicotine-rich seaweed that the ocean supplies me, albeit sparingly. Do you still miss your Cubans, sir? Captain, I scorn them from this day forward. Then smoke these cigars whenever you like, without debating their origin. They bear no government seal of approval, but I imagine they are none the worse for it. On the contrary, just then, Captain Nemo, nicotine-rich seaweed. Does such a thing exist? Nicotine-rich seaweed. Uh, does seaweed contain nicotine? Um, I don't. I don't know. Um, I mean, apparently it's a it's a member of the nightshade family, so potentially I don't know. I don't know enough about but but I don't I don't know. Anyway, I'm sure that'd be a fun Google search uh, later on. Just then, Captain Nemo opened door facing the one by which I had entered the library, and I passed into an immense and splendidly splendidly lit lounge. It was a huge quadrilateral uh, with canted corners, 10 meters long, 6 wide, 5 high. A luminous ceiling decorated with delicate ar arabesques, 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 fuck it, distributed a soft, clear daylight over all the wonders gathered in this museum. For a museum it truly was, which in, clever, in which clever hands had spared no expense in amassing every natural and artistic treasure, displaying them with helter-skelter picturesqueness that distinguishes a painter's studio. Picturesqueness. Jesus. 
I'm not drunk, I promise. Some 30 pictures by the master, uniform masters, uniformly framed and separated by gleaming panoplies of arms adorned the walls, on which were stretched tapestries of austere design. There I saw canvases of the highest value, the likes of which I had marveled at in private European collections and art exhibitions. The various schools of the old masters were represented by Raphael Madonna, a virgin by Leonardo da Vinci, a nymph by Caraggio, uh, a woman by Titane, Titian? Titian, might be Titian. And an adoration of the Magi by Veronese, an assumption of the Virgin by Moreo, a Holbein portrait, a monk by Velasquez, a martyr by Ribera, a village fair by Rubens, two Flemish landscapes by Teneres, three little genre paintings by Gerard Dow, Metsu, and Paul Potter, two canvases by Gericault and Proudhon, plus seascapes by Bacchus and Vernet. Among the works of modern art were pictures signed by Delacroix, uh, uh, it's Delacroix, uh, Ingres, Decam, <laughs> God damn it, Troyon, Messonnier, Dabougine, etc., and some wonderful miniature statues and marbles and bronze modeled after antiquity's finest originals stood on their pedestals in the corners of the magnificent museum. As the Nautilus's commander said, predicted my mind was already starting to fall into the promised state of stunned amazement. A lot of a lot of artists in that list of shit that I don't recognize, uh, but a lot that I did. So, hooray! Um, I also am pretty positive I have butchered every single name that just came across my fucking transcript here, Professor. The strange man then said, "You must excuse the informality with which I receive you in this disordered reigning uh, in this lounge, sir." I replied, "Without prying into who you are, might I venture to identify you as an artist?" A collector, so nothing more. Formerly, I loved acquiring these beautiful works created by the hands of man. I saw them greedily, ferreted them tirelessly, and I've been able to gather some logics of great value. They're my last mementos of those shores that are now dead for me. In my eyes, your modern artists are already as old as the ancients. They've existed for 2,000 or 3,000 years, and I mix them up in my mind. The masters are ages. What about those composers? I said, pointing to the sheet music by Weber, Rossini, Mozart, Beethoven, Hayden, Maybeer, Harold, Wagner, Auberginald, Victor Masse, and a number of others scattered over a full-size piano organ, which occupied one of the wall panels in the slash. These composers, Captain Nemo answered me, are the contemporaries of Orpheus, because the annals of the dead, all chronological differences fade. And I am dead, Professor, quite as dead as those friends of yours sleeping six feet under. Captain Nemo fell silent and seemed lost in reverie. I regarded him with intense excitement, silently analyzing his strange facial expressions. Leaning his elbow on the corner of the valuable mosaic table, he no longer saw me. He had forgotten my very presence. Just like Peter Pan. I didn't disturb his meditations, but to continue to pass in review the curiosities that enriched this lounge. After the works of art, natural rarities predominated. They consisted chiefly of plants, shells, and other exhibits from the oceans that must have been Captain Nemo's own personal finds. In the middle of the lounge, a jet of water electrically lit fell back into the basin made from a single giant clam. The delicately festooned rim of the shell supplied by the biggest mollusk in the class, a cephala, um, measured across about six meters in circumference. So it was even bigger than those fine giant clams given to King Francois I, um, given to King Francois I by the Republic of Venice wind which the Church of Saint Sulpice um, in Paris has made into two gigantic holy water fonts 
Around this basin inside elegant glass cases fastened with copper bands, there were classified and labeled the most valuable marine exhibits ever put before my eyes of a naturalist. My professoral, my professoral glee may be easily imagined. The zoophyte branch offered some very unusual specimens from its two groups, the polyps and the echinoderms. In the first group, Oregon pipe coral, gorgonate, Gorgonian coral, arranged into fan shapes, soft sponges from Sirius, Isis coral from the Molucca Islands, sea pen coral, wonderful corals of the genus Vergularia, yeah, uh, from the waters of Norway, various corals of the genus Umbellularia, Umbellularia, Alka, fuck you, Jules Verne, what did you do? Did you pick up a fucking book? And just wrote down every goddamn fancy word you could find. Ugh. Making me stumble all over this. I want to be a marine biologist. A lot of these things do sound familiar to me. Alcanarian coral. Then a whole series of those madrepores that my profess mentor, Professor Milne Edwards, had so shrewdly classified into divisions. And among which I noted the wonderful genus Flabellina, as well as the genus Zacalina from the Reunion Islands, plus a Neptune's chariot from the Caribbean Sea. Every superb variety of coral, in short, every species of these unusual polyparies that congregated to form entire islands that one day will turn into continents. Among these echinoderms, noted, notable for being covered in spines, starfish, feather stars, sea lilies, free-swimming cryonids, brittle stars, sea urchins, sea cucumbers, etc. represented a complete collection of the individuals in this group. An excitable conchologist would surely have fainted dead bef away before other new more numerous glass cases in which were classified specimens from the mollusk branch. Let's just run down the list of every fucking sea creature. There I saw a collection of a calculable value that I had time to describe completely. Among these exhibits I'll mention just for the record an elegant royal hammer shell from the Indian Ocean whose evenly spaced white spots stood out sharply against the base of red and brown and imperial spiny oysters brightly colored, bristling with thorns a specimen rare to European museums whom, who value I estimated at 20,000 francs a common hammer shell from the seas near Queensland, very hard to come by. Exotic cockles from Senegal. Fragile white bivalve shells that a single breath could pop like a soap bubble. Several varieties of watering pot shell from Java. A sort of limestone tube fringed with leafy folds and much fought over by collectors. A whole series of top shell snails, greenish yellow ones off the uh, fished up from America's seas. Others colored reddish brown that patronized the waters off Queensland. The former coming from the Gulf of Mexico, notable for their overlapping shells. The latter, some some carrier shells found in the southernmost seas, finest and rarest of all, the magnificent spurred star shells from New Zealand. And then some wonderfully peppery furrow shells, several valuable species of Cythera clams and Venus clams, the trellis went tr wentel trap snail from Trancabar on India's eastern shore, a marbled turban snail gleaming with mother of pearl, green parrot shells from the seas of China, virtually unknown cone snail from the genus Conodulus, every variety of cowrie used as money in India and Africa as glories of the seas, the most valuable shell in the East Indies, and finally, common periwinkles, Delphi nulia snails, turret snails, violet snails, European cowries, vowlet snails, olive shells, uh, miter shells, helmet shells, murex snails, whelks, harps shells, spiky periwinkles, triton snails, horn shells, spindle shells, conch shells, spider conchas, limpets, glass snails, sea butterflies, every kind of delicate fragile seashell that science had baptized with its most delightful names. Fuck you, Jules Verne in the ass. That was terrible. That was absolutely awful rattling that off. And there's more! 
There's more random lists of bullshit for him to just make me read. Fuck you. Aside and in special compartments, strings of supremely beautiful pearls were spread out, the electric light flecking them with little fiery sparks, pink pearls pulled from salt roller fans in the Red Sea, green pearls from the rainbow abalone, yellow, yellow, blue, and black pearls, the unusual handiwork of various mollusks from every ocean and of certain mussels from the rivers up north. In short, several specimens of incalculable worth that had been oozed by the rarest of shellfish. Some of these pearls were bigger than a pigeon's egg, and they uh, they more than equaled the ones that the explorer Ta Tavernier sold to Shah sold sold to the Shah of Persia for three million francs, and they surpassed that other pearl owned by Imam of Muscat, which I believed to be unrivaled in the entire world. Consequently, to calculate the value of this collection was, I should say, impossible. Captain Nemo must have spent millions in acquiring these different specimens. And I was wondering what financial resources he had tapped to satisfy his collector's fancy when these words interrupted me. You're examining my shelves, Professor. They are indeed able to fascinate a naturalist. But for me, they have an added charm since I collected every one of them with my own two hands. Not a sea on the globe has escaped my investigations. I understand, Captain. I understand your light at strolling in the midst of this wealth. You're a man who gathers his treasures in person. No museum in Europe owns such a collection of its exhibits from the ocean. But if I exhaust all my wonderment on them, I'll have nothing left for the ship that carries them. I have absolutely no wish to probe these secrets of yours. I have absolutely no wish to probe those secrets of yours. But I confess I, that my curiosity is aroused to the limits by this Nautilus. The motor power it contains, the equipment enabling it to operate, the ultra-powerful force that brings it to life. I see some instruments hanging on the walls of the, of the silence, whose purpose are unknown to me. May I learn? Professor Alnox, Captain Nemo answered me. I've said you'd be free aboard my vessel, so no part of the Nautilus is off limits to you. You may inspect in detail, and I'll be delighted to act as your guide. I do not know how to thank you, sir, but I won't abuse your good nature. I would only ask uh, you about the uses intended of these instruments for physical measure. Professor, these same instruments are found in my stateroom. Well, I'll have the pleasure of explaining the function to you. But beforehand, come inspect the cabinet set aside for you. You need to learn how you'll be lodged aboard the Nautilus. I followed Captain Nemo, who, via one of the doors cut into the lounge's canted corners, led me back down the ship's gangways, he took me to the bow, and there I found not just a cabin, but an elegant stateroom with a bed, a washed and various other furnishings. I could only thank my host. Your stateroom adjoins mine, he told me, opening a door, and my leads uh, into that lounge we've just left. I entered the captain's stateroom. It had an austere, almost monistic appearance, an iron bedstead and a work table, some washstand fixtures, subdued lighting, no luxuries, just the bare necessities. Captain Nemo shoved me to a bench. Kindly be seated, he told me. I sat, and he began speaking as follows. Oh, that's the end of the chapter? Ah, shit. Well, I guess we'll, guess we'll have to fucking wait and see what Captain Nemo says next time. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of The Going Up Cast. Next week is episode 100. Um, I don't know if I have anything like super cool and exciting planned. Probably just going to be another episode of The Going Up Cast, but it's fine. We've, we've, next week we'll have done this for, for 100 weeks, more or less. Um, so that's kind of neat. Uh, yeah, and this week we talked about my car troubles. We talked about... Uh, we talked about a whole bunch of stuff. Um, my, my plans for, for moving and how that's all coming together. We read some more 20,000 leagues. It's a good week. Hope you're all doing okay out there. I know those numbers for the world exploding keep climbing. And 
that's that can be scary. Uh, just keep wearing that mask and keep washing your hands, and it's really the best you can do. Um, and I'll see you all next week for episode 100. Have a good one, everyone.